Welcome in to News and Views with Tom Lamprecht. The stories you've heard and the ones you need to hear. Russia, Ukraine. The United States will soon move additional forces. 3,000 troops. Bad idea. It's a mistake to send more American troops. The Holocaust isn't about race. Whoopi will be back in two weeks. Democrats promise to get our country back on track. The worst inflation in 40 years. And Washington, Democrats own it. Six more weeks of winter there will be. Your life, your values, your voice. This is News and Views with Tom Lamprecht on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. All right, welcome in. It is News and Views for a Wednesday. And uh, the Supreme Court, North Carolina Supreme Court, heard oral arguments this morning at 9.30. Lasted uh, pretty much uh, right at 90 minutes. And uh, sort of went like you would expect. Uh, I now I'm biased, but as I watched it, I thought the Democratic justices, the Democrat justices, wouldn't uh, let the Republicans get too many sentences in without interrupting them. And uh, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll say that uh, Chief uh, Newby also had a few questions for the for the Democrats and for the uh, attorneys that were representing the uh, North Carolina legislature. Mitch Kokai is the senior political analyst for the John Locke Foundation, and he has written on this, and he has followed this, and uh, no doubt he was uh, paying close attention earlier this morning when this oral argument was taking place. He's on the phone with us right now. Mitch, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm glad that I could run into at least one other person who paid attention to the entire proceedings. People who had something better to do, I hope they did. But, uh, but, of course, that's what we get paid to do is uh, pay attention to what's going on with these politicos and, and uh, what is going to happen with these election maps that everyone's so concerned about. Well, give us your general impression. Were you surprised at anything or did it go pretty much like you had expected? Not particularly surprised. I, I think something that struck me fairly early was, as you mentioned, Chief Justice Newby, jumped in relatively soon once the plaintiffs started making their case. And the plaintiffs are the the three groups of folks who are trying to get the election maps thrown out. They're not specifically the Democratic Party, but they're left-of-center groups ideologically aligned with the Democrats. And they're all pushing for maps that would be better for the Democrats if uh, once the elections take place in 2022. So Chief Justice Newby jumped in pretty early. And I was a little surprised that he was the only one asking questions for as long as he did. Eventually, Justice Sam Jimmy Irvin IV jumped in and asked some questions of the plaintiffs. But uh, my, my initial thought was, this doesn't look too good if Justice Newby is the only one asking questions, because then it's pretty clear that the other folks are going to get what they want and don't feel a need to jump in. But then, of course, once the defendants... The legislative defendants started making their case, and the justices on the Democratic side started throwing questions at them. And I thought, okay, well, it's a a little bit better indication that that all of these justices have some questions and some ideas they want to throw out there and see if they can uh, uh, knock these lawyers off their game. Well, did you get the impression, and and maybe it's just my bias in this, but did you get the impression that the— the Democrat justices that were asking the questions were basically 
that's all they were trying to do was to quiet the attorneys for the legislature and throw them off their game because by the time uh, you know they would make uh, the, the attorneys would make a point one of the justices would ask a question before the attorney could get the answer out another justice seemed to jump on top of them and ask another question and you know i i thought they did a a good job but it was certainly a challenge a challenge for them as they were constantly interrupted there definitely was some of that and i think Part of it is just the way oral arguments move forward, because basically the lawyers have submitted the the bulk of their arguments through the written material. There are thousands of pages connected to this case, and the justices have had a chance to review that. So oral arguments are really your last chance to get some ideas in front of these justices that they might not have picked up reading through the, the thousands of pages. So uh, there was some of that. But I also think that one of the reasons the Democratic justices were so quick to jump on the attorneys representing the legislative defendants is that they really have a philosophical difference about whether the courts should jump into this situation. Because remember, the, the argument from the legislative defendants is basically whatever you think about these maps, they, they aren't conceding that they think they're uh, very partisan gerrymanders, but they say, whatever you think of the maps, there's nothing within the state's political history or its constitution or the history of the precedents of the Supreme Court that would suggest that the courts can come in and do anything about it. There is no standard that could be put forward, a judicial standard, something judges could enforce and could tell the legislature You've got to follow this or else you're breaking the rules. There's no standard of that sort that you can put forward that would eliminate what you see, what you justices and uh, Democratic challengers think is a problem. Once they said that, then the, the Democratic justices leaped in and said, well, wait a minute, we can come up with a standard. Or don't you think, as Justice Anita Earle said, I guess this was, this was another uh, surprising element to me, is that Justice Anita Earle's specifically came out and endorsed the idea of making party affiliations a protected class in the same way that race is. Yeah, that was totally bizarre. And I would I'd also say pretty racist. I mean, because her 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 basic thought process was, okay, I mean, and, and these are pretty much her words. Blacks vote Democrats. So therefore, we need to make sure that the Democrat Party is a protected entity and what a racist statement to come out and say, well, if you're black, this is how you're going to vote. Yeah, and it, it really gets outside of this notion that people are free to make their own choices about their political affiliations. And, you know, you could look just in our own state's political structure. The top ranking Republican right now in state government is an African-American, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. Who's right. Very popular. Uh, yeah, you, that, I think you do. You are hitting on. An important point there. I think it's also something that Phil Strack, one of the lawyers working for the General Assembly, was quick to point out that, look, the, one of the reasons that race is a protected class is that race is something that's immutable. You can't change your race. And if there's intentional discrimination against your race, that, that is something that's clearly outside of the bounds. But when you're trying to protect a voter as being a Republican or as being a Democrat, that's a different 
ball game because you're not protecting an individual right. Instead, you're creating this group right that Democrats as a group, or if it were on the other side, Republicans as a group, have some sort of right to some degree of political representation. And that's just not something our political system or our constitutional system has ever uh, contemplated. If that's true, then what happens when a new set of maps comes out and perhaps the Libertarian Party or unaffiliated voters decide, wait a minute, we're discriminated against. We should be protected in the same way Republicans and Democrats are. Where does that process end? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we used to have a party called the Whig Party. They're not around anymore. Who knows if that was your precedent? Who knows what the scene will look like in 50 years? You know, I thought it was maybe maybe someone maybe someone who's a descendant of a Whig could say, there you go. Discriminating (laughs) against me. And you have for decades and centuries. Well, I tell you what, that as bizarre as some of the arguments were today, I don't think that would be surprising to some some observers. The attorney that represented the North Carolina League of Conservation Voters basically said, look, if these maps stand, then that means that, and I'm, put, I'm paraphrasing here, but that means that Republicans are guaranteed to control politics in the state of North Carolina from here to whenever. And I thought Paul Newby, he didn't miss a beat. He immediately said, well, wait a minute. Uh, and again, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, wait a minute, when the Republicans won the legislature, they did that with maps that were drawn by Democrats. That's exactly right. Uh, He was referring to the fact that in 2008, using maps that had been drawn earlier in the decade, mainly by Democrats, there was, when the the 2002 map or 2003 map was done, a 60-60 split in the House, but Democrats basically ran the show in that partnership. So it was maps mainly drawn by Democrats. And Democrats won the control of the General Assembly for basically the rest of the decade, even when, going back to some of the plaintiffs' arguments in this case, Republicans won the larger percentage of the statewide vote. Democrats won control of the General Assembly. But then after, in 2008, winning substantial majorities in the General Assembly, by the time the uh, 2010 election came around, under the exact same maps, the results basically flipped, and large majorities for the Democrats that they had won in 2008 became large majorities for the Republicans, and on the Senate side, a supermajority. Right. And Paul Libby said, how can you explain that? These maps were gerrymandered in favor of the Democrats, and Republicans ended up winning, which kind of undercuts this whole argument exactly. that any map mm-hmm. can entrench a particular party forever despite the results. And another thing that, that, that Justice Chief Justice Newby pointed out that I think was very important is that all of this is predicated on the fact that there is some sort of a notion of proportional representation. Now, the lawyers on the other side are very quick to say we are not asking for proportional representation. The reason they say that is previous court rulings have said we don't have proportional representation. If you ask for that directly – courts would shoot you down. So everything else that has ever been developed to try to get rid of this partisan gerrymandering from a legal standpoint has always tried to get around proportional representation while still asking for that. Because if this is going to be called extreme partisan gerrymandering, it has to be extreme compared to something else. And the something else is the hard thing to come up with, because the something else 
has got to be something, according to the plaintiff's argument, that would be close to proportional representation. If you're not willing to admit what your baseline is, then there's no way to call anything else that strays from that baseline extreme. Well, it was interesting because Paul Newby asked one of the lawyers for the plaintiffs to give a definition of proportional representation, and he refused to do it. I mean, mm-hmm. he just, well, right, I really yeah. don't know. I can't say. And it was pretty yeah, obvious he, he didn't want times. to give an answer. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he has two or three times, and, and it was because of that point, because another point that, that Chief Justice Newby made that was very important, and he did this more than one time, he said, look, if, if we're going to accept your argument that these maps are so partisan that they're unconstitutional, we're going to have to come up with some sort of standard that we can give to the General Assembly and say, look, your maps are unconstitutional under the state constitution. Here's why, and here's what you need to do to make the maps constitutional. If they can't do that, then it's not really something that a judge or a justice should contemplate. In fact, as has been referenced in the written record here, and it was alluded to as well in the oral arguments, that's exactly what the U.S. Supreme Court did in 2019 when it washed its hands of partisan gerrymandering cases. The majority on the U.S. Supreme Court said, look, this is a political question. There is nothing that you could come up with that's a manageable judicial standard that will separate what's permissible from what's impermissible. And if you can't have a judicial standard, then Judges should be involved. Otherwise, they're just going to be legislating from the bench. We're talking to Mitch Kokai. He's the senior political analyst for the John Locke Foundation. We're talking about the oral arguments that took place concerning the congressional and district maps in the state of North Carolina. Mitch, uh, Benny Hardy's with us. He's got a question for you. Hey, Mitch. It's, uh, you just kind of hit on a point that I was I had it jotted down with. You know, it's not the judge's place to come up with a standard. It's the judge's place to judge and not legislate. And and I thought today, you know, a couple of surprises I had. I, I too, was surprised that uh, Justice Newby, you know, right out of the gate um, was as engaged as he was. But And I know I'm biased, but it seemed to me Justice Newby was trying to uh, direct the dialogue and conversation on the Constitution and and, right. and what it was that hey what we can discuss here and I don't I don't see that the other side other than um, you know just really showing their extreme partisan colors I mean er- everyone knows Anita Earls I mean her, she's got a lifetime of being an activist and a lobbyist really for for her party and uh, positions and her her constituents positions uh, that she's worked for. I don't think they made an argument at all other than that they appeared that the judges were – I mean, to me, I, I listened to it, didn't watch it, listened to it because I was working. If I didn't know the voices of these people, and I know, I've listened to these people before, I would have thought that Anita Earls was, art, was, was, was a representative and attorney for the plaintiff. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I really yeah. would yeah. have. Yeah, and in fact, uh, part of that is probably because she has been a <laughs> yeah. representing the plaintiffs of similar cases That's in the past true. she came out of the Supreme Court. But you're right that a lot of this is is a, a little surprising to folks who haven't paid a whole lot of attention to it, that the justices seem to be much more involved in the idea of making policy than in settling a legal dispute. For folks who haven't followed this very closely, it's important to know 
that the argument here is that the North Carolina state constitution, because of some of its basic principles, outlaws partisan gerrymandering. Well, you you could search in vain in the text of the Constitution (laughs) for anything that spells that out. What they're saying is something like the clause that says we will have free elections thus implies that you can't have partisan gerrymandering. And you really have to make a huge leap from a clause that says we will have free elections to saying that you can't use partisanship in gerrymandering. But some of the Democratic justices seem to think that that's true. We heard Justice Michael Morgan say, hey, you know, the the trial court said that this partisan gerrymandering is bad and it's going to expose us to ridicule. Uh, Doesn't that mean that we should be able to use this free elections clause to do away with it? And the argument on the other side has been, well, no, the Constitution doesn't say that. What the Constitution does say is that the General Assembly draws the maps. And here are a few objective criteria that they have to follow. And beyond that, it doesn't say anything else. Now, the federal courts have said you can't use racial gerrymandering, so you can't uh, go out of your way in an impermissible way to limit the votes of African-Americans or other protected classes of minority groups in other states. Sometimes it's Latinos because they have such a a large uh, effect on their voting process. But there is nothing that says you can't use partisanship. And in fact, previous court rulings, including right. North Carolina rulings, have said it is permissible to use partisan considerations. So the, the, the real problem here for those who want to strike these maps down is, OK, how do you tell the General Assembly that what they did is wrong because it's too partisan when nothing within the Constitution or previous court precedents says that using partisanship is wrong. Yeah, and, and to, to that point, something I thought uh, Justice Newby hit very clearly today, and I was disappointed the other justices did not um, counter-argue this or even engage in this conversation. He made a comment. He says, you know, the North Carolina Constitution speaks to free elections, but it not, does not speak to fair elections. And, you know, to me, that brings up a point, well, okay, well, well, if it doesn't speak to it, who determines fair? It sounds like the Democrats want to say it's only fair if we get to pick it. But I thought on that point, I thought that would be an opportunity for, you know, uh, Justice Earls or, or Morgan or Irvin, either one, to argue the point of the Constitution, the text of the Constitution, not, but they went right back to arguing the plaintiff's case. And I, I just thought it was sad for for the rule of law and the Constitution and for people that are elected that you hope are advocates for the law, not advocates for a plaintiff. We're talking about liberals here, though. Since when do they – I mean, that's all they do is read into the Constitution what they want to read into it. And I just just thought it really – that was a pretty telling point to me today. Yeah, it would be rare for them to kind of talk over each other during oral arguments. They'll probably do that in their opinions. They'll say – well, the majority decides this, but here's where they're wrong, or the the, uh, the dissenters say this, but here's where they're wrong. So they'll, they'll do a lot of that when they get onto the written page. But uh, I think another thing that was very telling here was near the end, you probably also uh, flagged this mentally, if not in your notes, is that Phil Strack, one of the lawyers arguing for the legislative defendants, said some of the damage has already been done yes. by the Supreme yeah. Court already leaping in and deciding to take this case. There are a lot of people 
who are just looking at this court saying, oh, we got a 4-3 Democratic majority. It's going to be a Democratic ruling. It's all going to be partisan. And I don't think that the Supreme Court did anything today that would dissuade people from thinking that. I mean, that, that has been not just in this case, but in some other cases as well. You see uh, you get a ruling in a trial court and then whoever is on the side of the, the, the Democrats, if this is a political debate, they want to leapfrog over the Court of Appeals and get to the state Supreme Court because the Court of Appeals has 10 Republicans and five Democrats. And so they'd rather just say, oh, all right, well, we might not win there. Let's go straight to the Supreme Court. And I think if this ruling comes out as a 4-3 Democrat versus Republican ruling, that almost any other case that's political between now and the next election, you're going to see plaintiffs who are aligned with the Democratic Party or their ideological allies are going to try to run as fast as they can to the Supreme Court to get a ruling before voters make a change in 2022, if they do make a change. Did you see anything from any of the four Democrat uh, justices that would give you just even a slight thought that perhaps they would rule in favor of the maps? The, The only one who, to me, seems persuadable one way or the other would perhaps be Justice Irvin, mm-hmm. partly because of his questions, because, you know, he seemed to be more probing with his questions than trying to uh, try to lay out a, a political case, as, as Justice Earls did, and to some extent, Justice Morgan. Uh, Justice Hudson, her old, Robin Hudson, her only question was, hey, what does it matter how far away from, from uh, ideal this is if it's not reflecting the will of the people? So she seemed to buy into that argument made very early on that the uh, that the uh, that the plaintiffs made that if if the results don't reflect the will of the people and by that they seem to mean what the voters are saying in statewide elections in other races, which is not the same as legislative or congressional races. You know, she I, seemed to buy into that mob rule. While while, while <laughs> yeah, Justice yeah, Irvin, yeah. go ahead, go ahead, more asking uh, asking about some specific legal issues that he was trying to get his head around. So if, if he's not completely convinced by the plaintiffs, maybe he goes along with the Republicans. Also, remember, he's the only one running for re-election this year. And if it looks like something that's going to be uh, mm. a, a way to kill his campaign Good point. To, to vote against these maps, uh, that might be a consideration, too. Although, to his credit, I would say that I think uh, from in, in most cases, he has seemed to be a, a, a guy who follows his judicial philosophy and doesn't just uh, lick the finger and stick it up in the air to see which way the wind's blowing. Uh, lastly, and you know, our, our hunch is, and I'm sure your hunch is, that it's that the the four Democrats are going to overrule the three Republicans. I hope I'm wrong on that. And as I said yesterday, that would be a huge um, check mark on the character of that one Democrat that might come over and uh, vote with the Republicans. But uh, let's assume that the Democrats come in and say these maps are illegal. Um, What would you expect? Would you expect them to give it back to the uh, General Assembly to redraw the maps? Would you expect the General Assembly to try to appeal this to a federal court? Well, I don't know that there's going to be a great opportunity for appeal to a federal court unless it has something to do with the congressional map. I think that the legislative maps are, are going to be decided at the state level. The congressional map, 
maybe it could go to Congress, depending on what the Supreme Court rules. But uh, state law says the Supreme Court has to give the General Assembly two weeks to come up with a plan, at least two weeks to come up with a plan to cure the defects. Now, if, if you've been following this very closely, there was a friend of the court brief filed by Governor Roy Cooper and Attorney General Josh Stein that dealt with this exact point. Yeah, we we read your piece on that on the show yesterday, Mitch. Well, good, yeah. So so basically they said, you know, this idea that you have to get the General Assembly two weeks, it's really only a request. And so they're kind of treating this this piece of state law as if it's not something that that you really have to follow. So if if the Supreme Court wants to, it could perhaps just say, well, General Assembly, you don't have time to do it. We're going to bring in a special master. We're going to draw the maps ourselves, and we're going to, we're going to put those maps in place. And unfortunately, unless the federal court steps in, and I'm not sure it would do it for anything other than the congressional elections, our Supreme Court is our highest court, and there's not much anyone could do about it. So, Except uh, we'll vote for a new justice, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and you'll have a chance. This fall, there are yep. two... Supreme Court seats up for grabs, and both of them are held down by Democrats. So there would be a chance to, for voters, if they wanted to, to flip from 4-3 Democratic majority to as much as 5-2 Republican majority. Mitch Kokai, thank you, sir. Do appreciate your insights. Uh, let's do it again. Sounds great. Thank All you. All right. Mitch Kokai calling in from Raleigh. He is the political analyst for the John Locke Foundation. More news and views right after this. Hey. 